Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ezra. Um, we'll be reading from the first part of chapter 1 and then all of chapter 3. Uh, listen to God's word. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, quote, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem, end quote. Chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, then arose Joshua, the son of Josadic, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord." burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required, and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord." From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the, great, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadic, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and up, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, 
and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, singing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid And many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's word. The Lord be with you. Uh, Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the season uh, which we have entered now. uh, As we look forward to your coming and your coming again. Help us to be open to receive you into our hearts once more. Now in the hearing of this word. Help us to believe, to find comfort, to be challenged, and to continue to abide in your presence, now and always. We ask in Jesus' name. Back in the day, uh, years and years ago, um, when I used to quote rather uh, frequently from C.S. Lewis, um, people would sometimes ask me about um, how to read uh, Lewis's seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia. They would ask about what's the order I should read these books to my children? Uh, Should I start and read them in the order in which they were written, beginning with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Or should I read them as they are now often uh, um, printed, beginning with the chronological order, the internal order uh, of the books. So begin with the the magician's nephew first. Um, Or those of you who are fans of the uh, Star Wars uh, franchise, um, should you watch them in the order in which the movies were made, beginning with episode four, A New Hope? Or should you begin in their chronological order, beginning with Phantom Menace? Or those of you who are fans of the MCU, um, do you start with Iron Man, the first one that was made? Or should you start watching beginning with Captain America, the first Avenger? Um, I suppose you could read those books or watch those movies in any order, in a completely random order. But then you would miss out on sort of this, this overarching story. You would also miss out on how the newer stories are built on the older ones. And you would miss out on all of the kinds of um, 
small jokes and references, these Easter eggs that depend on your knowledge of the previous and earlier stories. And most importantly, you would miss out on the last story, right? That, that last story, unless you have invested emotionally uh, with your time and uh, all the earlier stories, that last story won't quite be as satisfying uh, without having been a part of all the stories that came before. Uh, I mention all this because we are now at the end of our narrative readings in the Old Testament, and it may surprise some of you that the last reading in the Old Testament for us is Ezra. Ezra. Ezra is not a popular book in the church. Even if you are a regular reader of the Bible, you may never have read Ezra or remember anything from it. You have probably never heard a sermon based on a reading from Ezra. As best as I can remember it, this is now the, only the third time I am preaching from the book of Ezra in the last 20 years. So maybe over a span of a thousand sermons or so, this is the third one. Three sermons on Ezra in 20 years is actually probably more than you will get in most churches. Uh, I learned this week that not a single passage of Ezra appears in the, in the Revised Common Lectionary, which means you could go to a church that is very conscientious about trying to cover all of the scriptures every year, and you could attend that church your entire life and never hear a word from the book of Ezra. And after today, it's probable that you won't hear from Ezra again for another decade. And it's not hard to understand why. There are no miracle stories in the book of Ezra. There are no uh, interventions by God directly. There are no memorable stories that we can pass on to our children in Sunday school. We don't even get a single, thus saith the Lord. What it has instead are rather boring lists of items that are used for worship. The names of people who helped out with rebuilding and the reconstruction. Some letters to government officials for safe passage and permits for construction. It kind of reads like the personal journal of the clerk of session, which a couple of you might enjoy reading, but I suspect most would not. Now, in our Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And Malachi ends with these words. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, even though it ends with the word destruction, thematically, this is a good, it's a, it's a hopeful ending to the Old Testament narrative because it anticipates this coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, which culminates, as we have come to know, in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. However, in the Jewish Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, the, order, the ordering of the books is different than ours. It does not end with Malachi, 
Rather, it ends with 2 Chronicles. And the last two verses of the book of 2 Chronicles are almost identical to the first four verses that you just heard from Ezra. It ends with the words that begin the book of Ezra. In other words, the Jewish Bible ends with a different kind of hope, not the hope of a coming Messiah, but that the exiles are finally being allowed to return to their homeland, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and to rebuild their lives together that ensues. So how does a community rebuild life together after exile? That's the question, and I think that's a timely word for us. Last week, we heard from the prophet Isaiah who offered words uh, of challenge and comfort to the descendants as they were returning back to their homeland. And here we learn how it is that they were able to make that return. It's made possible not by any sort of uh, obvious or direct intervention from God, but by the decline in the geopolitical fortunes of the Babylonian Empire and the ascension of Cyrus, the king of Persia. It's his new policy of repatriation that allows the Israelites to return to their ancient homelands. Cyrus is acting on his own interests. He's expanding and stabilizing his empire. He's exploiting the religious desires of the peoples. And he's making these claims about how God and all the other gods are supporting him, that they want him to be their ruler. It's nothing more than political propaganda. But regardless of his intentions or motivations, Ezra can see behind this, behind Cyrus's decisions, that they are ultimately the result of God's actions, that it is God who is behind his schemes to fulfill the words that God had given to his people, such as those uttered by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, for example. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. While we can never fully understand that everything that is being played out, we can have the faith and choose to have the confidence that God is choreographing all the events of history so that somehow, somehow, within the genuine freedoms that individuals like Cyrus can exercise, everything is still moving toward God's perfect will and his plan of salvation for the whole world, a plan for a future and a hope. Now, when the people finally do get back, their first priority is not the rebuilding of the temple as Cyrus had instructed, but it is the restoration of worship. That's their first priority, the restoration of worship. Cyrus wanted the temple rebuilt because that would bring him glory, but the people knew that worship has to be restored first, that worship is more important, that there is a difference between worship and the house that houses that worship. And so they rebuild the altar first so that sacrifices and offerings can be made in worship. It could not have been easy. It could not have been easy to 
restore worship after so many years. Remember when we first tried to come back and to restore worship in this place? We had so many questions and so many decisions to make every single week. Do we meet indoors or outdoors? Do we take people's temperatures as they walk in through the doors? How do we cluster the chairs to maximize the highest possible number of seats and still maintain six feet of distance? Can we shake hands? Can we have coffee and donuts? When can we sing without masks on? When and how do we do communion and on and on? Every week, more and more questions about how do we restore worship? We struggle through those questions and many more because we recognize, as challenging as it was, we knew the importance of worship, that worship had to be at the center of our lives together and that we had to do everything we could to restore this corporate worship. The Israelites, too, wanted to make sure they prioritized worship and that they got it right. They pushed past their fears of their neighbors and they prioritized the worship of God even over the reconstruction of the protective walls around the city, even the rebuilding of their homes and the rebuilding of the temple. In the midst of competing priorities, they chose worship first. They chose worship first. And it's noteworthy that the people gathered, we are told, as one man, signifying this, this unity of a one scattered people, and I take encouragement from this, as I hope you will too, that the restoration of worship brought people together. It did not divide them. It brought them together that whatever separated them, at least temporarily, was laid aside so that they could worship together. And this work began also, importantly, in the seventh month of the year. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar is kind of like... Um, uh, Holy Week for us in our Christian calendar. The first day of the seventh month is the festival, festival of trumpets. It's when no ordinary work is to be done. This day is known today as um, Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. And then on the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And beginning on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles would be celebrated for an entire week. And so this is, this is like a really an important, important month. And the people want to get off to a good start in this beginning of their liturgical year. And they did everything they could to restore worship according to the word of God and in accordance with what they remembered was before. They wanted to be obedient and maintain this continuity with their past. And chapter 3, if you read the rest of the chapter 3, and as, uh, along with what we heard, you will see that it just uh, reverberates with echoes of the past, with vocabularies of previous worship and events in the story of the Israelites. None of you will get this illustration, but, but it's like uh, if you're a fan of Star Trek, and you watch Star Trek Lower Decks, it's so good because you know all the stuff that happened before. And that's what's going on here. They're trying to connect and reconnect with everything that happened before. So for example, they rebuild the altar first, just like Abraham built an altar when he first entered the promised land. They liken their return 
to like that of the Exodus story and re-entry into the promised land. The celebration of the Feast of Booths also connects them back to the story of the Exodus. The song they sing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel, that was the song that was sung when Solomon first built his first temple. The reconstruction of the temple begins on the second month, just as the construction of the first temple began on the second month. They do everything they can to repeat and to connect back to their whole story, the entire story that they have experienced with God. It's a good effort. There's no reason, I think, to doubt their sincerity. There is great celebration, and rightly so, once the foundation of the temple are finally laid. But we are also told, in the midst of this great celebration, verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, that is, those who had seen Solomon's original temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. The people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. Amidst all this joy and celebration, there was also the sound of weeping by the old men. Now the reason for their weeping is not explicitly stated here in Ezra. But elsewhere, for example, according to the prophet Haggai, they wept because the old men, some of these old timers, they had seen the grandeur of Solomon's original temple, and they saw that this new temple wasn't going to compare. I love the truth of this. Restoration, reconciliation, reconstruction, rebuilding can be very bittersweet. Yes, there is great celebration. But there is also the memory of what has been lost and why, why this restoration is necessary in the first place. It wouldn't have been necessary had the people been obedient in the first place. This is a story of redemption, but one that is mixed with grief. There is rejoicing, but that joy is inextricably intertwined with the sorrow that came before. And isn't this a story of all our lives? Aren't there sounds of joy, sometimes mixed and indistinguishable from the sounds of weeping in your homes, in our communities, in our church? Maybe some of you old men and women Remember how it used to be. Not just the price of gas back in the day, but how relationships used to be. How worship used to be. I know for myself that I've been joyful that we have been able to return to worship, to restore worship with everyone here. But I also feel some sadness by the absence of those who are no longer here with us. I know how hard it can be to return to worship. You know, I've been with this church now for more than 20 years. 
And yet, after just three months of, of being on sabbatical, I still remember that first few Sundays that I came back, um, you know, putting on a suit and getting behind the pulpit once more, it felt a little weird. Even after 20 years, it felt a little weird after missing a little bit of time and, and coming back. I know how it, hard it must be for those who haven't been here for a while. And so if you ever see someone that you haven't seen in a while, let's be extra welcoming. Let's invite them. And invite back those who we haven't seen in a while. Let worship bring us together. It's not easy. But let me encourage you with this. A few days ago, uh, someone was sharing um, how um, she had recently uh, downsized her home. Uh, the kids were out of the house, and she was getting a little older. And, you know, of course, we had a pandemic as well. And she said she kind of forgot how to host people in her home. Hosting was something that she did so well and so regularly, so incredibly well. But now she says she felt like she kind of lost her mojo. And she joked that maybe she needs to go to a tropical island to get her groove back. But she resolved that in the new year, she's going to start again with smaller gatherings. And she said that, you know, it might not be as good as it used to be, but she's going to start again. And I thought, wow, that, that's, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Even if we can't go back to hosting as well as before, even if we can't worship as well as before, even if we cannot go back to the glory that was Solomon's temple, we can make a beginning. We can make a beginning. Listen again to verse 8. Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. They made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They all came together and made a beginning together. Under less than ideal conditions, they began worship once more and made a beginning. Not just the leaders here, not just the priests, not just the kings, but all who had come back together. They all together made a beginning to restore the worship of God in their community. They made a beginning with celebration and weeping. And I think this is God's invitation to us. We've come to the end of the Old Testament story, but that story ends with the people who are just making a beginning. Even as the ancient Israelites tried to understand what it meant for them to live into this new reality, into this new future that God was creating in their midst, so we too, I think, are being invited into this new beginning. Making a beginning is not resignation. It's not, oh, well, it's never going to be as good as before. But it is anticipation. It is anticipation that God will do a new thing a new creation. And what the people don't realize in this moment is that, yes, maybe this new temple isn't going to be as glorious, but God is laying the foundations so that hundreds of years from now, a temple that is greater than the temple of Solomon will come. 
our future is not limited, is not confined, is not destined to a mere repetition of our checkered past and doom to failure and less. Rather, our future is rooted in the enduring, unchanging faithfulness of God, a steadfast love that endures forever. And that's why we can celebrate. And that's why we can hope and we can make another beginning. Please pray with me. About a decade or so ago, I used to pray this prayer a lot. My God, do not abandon me. I've done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. Maybe that's a prayer that we are being invited to make once more. God, in your compassion, in your compassion, grant to us the power to make a start. Lord, we see today that the people, your people, prioritized worship and restored worship as the first thing. And then later they began the reconstruction of the temple. But we have come to know, God, that it's you who will finish that reconstruction in your son, Jesus. We're mindful that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to to dwell. And not only that, but we, your church, we also are the temple of the Lord and that the spirit of God dwells in us. So God, help us to recognize once more that your steadfast love indeed endures forever and help us as we make a beginning once more in our worship. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.